Hey, welcome back to uh, our podcast today on reliability management team qualification. And, and this is part of a larger effort that we have undertaken with uh, DNB Healthcare, uh, the independent accreditation body that has agreed to audit to our collaborative high reliability model. Now, rather than go into the details of that, I thought we would share with you, Paul Lesage and I would share with you uh, the concepts around uh, why we do the certification in these steps and in this particular order. And uh, it's a segue from a previous conversation we had uh, on a podcast about collaboration, where we will now describe how, um, how we arrived at this qualification approach. So, so a couple of things, Paul, as we get started. Uh, when I started the company and you and I were discussing how to, uh, to, to form our business model, we both agreed that working with individuals doing one and done training sessions was frustrating to us and we weren't achieving the results that we had, had hoped for. Share, share what you had told me earlier about your frustration with, with that older model with that other uh, business we were, we were in. Uh, it, it, the frustrating part was you'd go in and you know, from our standpoint, Scott, both you and I have used a model that we felt had been institutionalized and people understood sort of what was behind it. And, and what I found out by going back into clients, you'd go back in six months later, eight months later, or they'd call you for some assistance and they'd turn just culture into a verb. And, and what I mean by that is that they would just culture people. So they literally call up and say, well, we just cultured this case. And we came to the fact that it was reckless or it was at risk. And, and, and then I'd ask a whole series of questions. Well, what were the risks and what were the system contributors? Well, you know, we didn't quite get to that or this person's done it before. And, and so what it really came down to was I got tired of over and over again, seeing people pull an algorithm out of a drawer and, and just culture people, right? And so the problem was, is they only used the, the methodology when somebody broke a rule. There wasn't, it was like, if you got caught breaking a rule, you were going to get just cultured. And I don't know if they took you out back to do that or, you know, how exactly that was performed, but, but, um, but you and I agreed after a while that, you know, this is, we had to have a model that was built on something a lot different. This couldn't just be an HR strategy. It had to be something different. Yeah. And, and uh, actually we're, we're going to work around this backwards, Paul, as we discussed uh, yesterday on our collaboration podcast, um, we, we came up, you and I together came up with a set of terms. Uh, we call these the hierarchy of socio-technical terms. And, and uh, for those that are listening and not watching this on video, we'll describe it to you verbally. Um, we see lots of things in organizations that we would, we would classify as an activity. Um, we, we, we do things like uh, we use checklists or we um, uh, we do rounding and huddles and other types of activities that don't necessarily have a structure that they're, they're oftentimes not documented. Uh, so there's no oftentimes rigor put into, into the exercise. So we call those an activity. A, a step above that would be a process, which is more formalized, uh, a documented set of activities that could become a procedure or a checklist or, or some other structure. And then there are programs that are comprised of both processes and sometimes activities, but those programs align those components, whatever they might be, and they document those. And then 
a step up from programs are systems, which show an alignment of various programs, processes, and other components. And then the final step in this term terminology is an integrated system, which uh, coordinates aligned uh, systems, programs, policies, processes, and other components. Now, now that is, 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 a, is a point of reference for us to, to look at, how would you describe just culture? How would you describe uh, team steps? How would you describe rounding or huddles or any of those things we do sometimes in healthcare? Well, yeah. well, I think that that's where, you know, this is where part of the issue is that we've made a really concerted effort that, um, you know, first of all, if someone is looking to check a box and say they need just culture in their organization, um, we're probably, you know, that without without a commitment to do something systemic, we're you know we're probably not your 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 folks. I mean, first of all, people are using these terms, a lot of these terms, me included, you know, sort of interchangeably. So if 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 you you see people saying, well, this is a process, or it's a framework, or it's a this, or it's or it's a method, and I'm like, well, okay, well that's really good, but how does it actually fit into an overall structure? And I think you pointed out huddles is the classic. You know, most of our healthcare clients do huddles, unit level huddles and executive level huddles, which I think are a brilliant idea. But what's interesting is if you first ask people who are doing, why are you doing a huddle? Well, it's a safety huddle. Well, how does it contribute to safety? And that's when things kind of go off the rails. They're like, well, it's just, it's the safe, it's a best practice. And, and be, I always think of best practices as a bunch of people who went to a conference and sat around with beverages in their hand and came up with something that was a best practice. I mean, a lot of times they're not based on science. So I, you know, when you actually frame it up that, well, a huddle is a process documented hopefully to help you see and understand risk. That's one part of the integrated system, see and understand risk. Now you see that you need huddles. And what that helps you do is if you don't have an activity or a process, like a checklist or something that, that helps you, you can put it into the right context. It's almost like when you and I made sure in our taxonomy with our clients that we don't let them use the term mistake. You know, a lot of people are like, well, we made a mistake. No, actually, you made a choice that you regret or you made an inadvertent error. And, and, and when you start trying to define terms a little bit more closely, you lose the ambiguity that goes along with a lot of that and you become, I think, more reliable. Yeah, I mean, this, this is, we're broadening the discussion here. Um, <laughs> I have a tendency so, to do that. <laughs> you, you know, when we look at, when we look at high reliability, um, I've started calling it, Paul, many organizations, including, I think, you know, the Joint Commission, uh, they take what I call the Jason Pollock approach. They, they, um, I'm sorry, Jackson Pollock. Is that his name? How did, Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock was his brilliant artist, and he would take paint and just throw it on the on the canvas, uh, and he threw it often at times, and, and, and whatever stuck became this this work of art. And uh, yeah, and I missed my calling. I'm pretty sure, but yeah, a lot, <laughs> a lot of organizations do that. They say, yeah, just culture, throw that on the canvas and uh, team steps. Oh yeah, check that box. And they, they throw this mosaic on the wall, but it doesn't look very scientific. It doesn't really have a cohesive structure uh, to it by design. Well, I think that's one of the things that you can really, we can focus on then today during this conversation about uh, qualification and certification is if you're going to do something, it should have, it should be integrated with other things and have an end goal. What we'll see is people will come in and teach team steps 
and they have an entirely different concept, you know, in team steps, you know, and I'm not criticizing team steps. If you have nothing, it's, it's good. But if you really understand crew resource management, team steps misses a lot of things. They don't discuss negative warnings. Everybody who speaks up is a hero. There's a lot of these issues that yeah. we know from experience won't make you reliable because they're independent programs that conflict with each other a lot of times, right? And so your process that you envisioned, Scott, quite a while ago was to, to harmonize those more, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, you mentioned Team Steps and, you know, Bum Helmreich, who is the father of uh, cockpit and then crew resource management, and as it evolved into healthcare, before he died, I, I was having a conversation with him, um, which I have to point out, it's pretty, that's an oxymoron. I, obviously, before he died, I didn't have the conversation after <laughs> he died, but, 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 but we were talking about, um, uh, how team steps had, had sort of mutated in healthcare. And, and I know that's a strong word, but it, it wasn't the same as it was in aviation because it was a very different environment, different discipline. Uh, most healthcare professionals aren't trained in the science of checklists and, and what the, the system strategies are that make checklists work. Um, and so team steps in, in healthcare, to my way of thinking and to Bob's became all about communication which is a vital component of how teams operate, but it's by no means the only component. If the teams aren't designed well, you, you know this in firefighting, you can communicate well, but if you don't have the right equipment, if you don't have the right structure, if you don't have the right system, then communication alone isn't gonna get you to high reliability. Um, so, so yeah, we, we're, we're, we're really kind of dancing around this topic of uh, throwing stuff on the wall like Jackson Pollock, but, uh, there is a structure here, and the structure is that that when we look at an organization, before we get to those activities that hopefully will will move up the hierarchy into process, program systems, and integrate systems, we we step back and say, well, how does an organization go about it? And what we've seen in the past is that uh, many organizations rely on consultants to come in and teach or train them, and then those consultants leave. And from day one, we said, we're not going to make our clients codependent on us. We're going to try to build up their skill and capacity so that, that we can leave and they will be sustainable on their own. Now, every organization has turnover. Every organization will change leadership. But what we've always been striving to do is achieve a sustainable framework for their success. Mm -hmm. And that starts with a reliable keyword here, a reliable team, not an ad hoc steering committee, not a little group that gets together once a month, but some, some team that functions in a specific way. Uh, and a key component of that, Paul, is, is how we train that team to a level of proficiency. And, and let's talk a little bit about that and share your personal experiences. And then we, we can talk about why that term is so important to us. Well, I, I'm, I think the consistency piece of the team approach is important. There's a lot of these pieces that when we develop the team have to be overcome. And I think part of the fun and part of the challenge of building these reliability teams is uh, helping them see how the team can provide um, at the elbow support to frontline supervisors, how they can be the subject matter experts around not a, a particular risk, but about how to deconstruct that risk and take it apart and look for contributors. 
um, and uh, and then how they can actually support the frontline supervisors uh, when they become, you know, probably maybe not always proficient, but at least uh, recognize what their job is in deconstructing risk at their own level. So the one of the most important parts of the teams that we found out, Scott, as you know, is the diversity of the team. Um, we can't have a team of all executives. Um, I remember one of the first teams we had, I, I said, I need a, you know, a nursing representative. I need this. And, and, and the nurse executive said, well, I, I'm, I'm a nurse. And I said, yeah, I understand. But with all due respect, I need a nurse who's like working every day on the front line. Right. And, and, and it would be the same way when I became a fire chief, uh, chief officer, uh, you know, is I wasn't working on a fire engine or a ladder truck every day. And it, did I know how they worked? Yeah. Did I understand, you know, what was supposed to happen on the ground? Yeah. Could I give their perspective that day? No, you needed the people who were actually doing the work and facing the challenges that just came up a month ago um, based on the systems that I as an executive put in place. So these reliability teams had to have both some executive representation, safety, quality, risk, frontline operations, logistics, you know, support services. Uh, they needed a really healthy view because we've sat there and looked at clinical cases before and we've had people like from engineering step in and go, well, have you thought of this? And, and because they're looking at it from a completely different perspective. So I think that diversity is critical. Yeah, diversity. And uh, actually, it starts with defining the, the purpose of the team what the team is going to do, whether they're going to analyze events, whether they're going to teach and train, whether they're going to promote. And we've used the term uh, quite often, subject matter experts. They, they become the extension of us inside the organization. They, they should be able to do a variety of things. And a team, uh, th then you get to the composition of a team. Well, how, how does is a team comprise in order to serve that function? Well, it, there's multiple functions. They're going to they're going to analyze, they're going to train, they're going to promote, they're going to do those things. And not everybody is going to be good at all of those things. So some people are going to be great at analysis. Other people are going to be great at, at conveying and training and promoting. So the team should be cross-functional. Uh, we should have frontline uh, uh, engagement. We should have different operational groups. We should have finance. We should have IT. Th those ancillary support structures that every organization has. Uh, and then that team then has to come together and serve that purpose. Um, and I think one of the things that really helps there is when you think about how different clients have used the teams in slightly different ways, but to be really effective. So if you look at, um, for instance, one of our large hospital clients in Boston, if you look at their statistics from 2016 and 2017, when they were doing um, you know, root cause analyses. There was probably four or five people at the hospital that were tasked with doing these root cause analyses always after a Sentinel event. And Sentinel usually meant reportable. And that what happened was you looked at that, they were doing between say 27 and 35 of those a year. And they're on track to do over 200 collaborative risk reviews this year. And mainly because they've got this whole cadre of SMEs now who've disseminated these skills out to the organization. So it's an exponential increase in the organization's ability to see and understand risk at every level when you start training these teams up like this. Yeah, and so, so that leads us to the topic of uh, the proficiency of the team, which implies individuals must become proficient. So we could go in and train a team today and go away and come back in a year or two 
and find that the team isn't operating the same way. So the, the way to, to manage that is to, is to understand the concept of, uh, of proficiency-based um, education. So, so we, we laugh a little bit, Paul, you and I, in the past when other organizations or other consulting firms offer certifications to individuals. And if, if it's a one and done certification where you have a plaque on the wall or a paperweight on your desk and you were trained 10 years ago, what would give anyone the confidence that you're still good at that today? Um, you would well, let's, let's think, let's look at that from a different perspective for a minute, because those certifications, some of which I hold and you hold from different places that we've gone, different training we've had in the past, th those are given out by the people who did the training. So for me as a paramedic, that would mean that the school that did my paramedic training and my flight training, flight paramedic training would be the same group that would, that would say I'm proficient. And they have that, that, that there's a vested interest in making sure that I'm proficient if you're the person teaching me to be proficient. For you, Scott, as an airline pilot, you know, that would be like, okay, the, the airline or somebody gets to determine that you're proficient. There's no third party coming in and doing a flight check on you. And I think we found early on that that was problematic, that we needed a we needed an external third party validation process on proficiency. So where we could set standards associated with proficiency but the people who are actually evaluating it do not have a vested interest in the outcome. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a fundamental bedrock principle of not, not only aviation, but, but in a broader sense, the ISO methodology uh, that DNB employs. Um, you're right, in, in aviation, both in the military and civilian organizations, you have separate departments, if you will, uh, between training and what they call flight standards or the checking. And they, they report up through a different structure. Uh, and, and that relates to a bedrock principle of high reliability of, of, of redundancies. And redundancies only work when they are truly independent. Otherwise, they are subject to common cause bias and other, other influences. But uh, in, in order for that independent verification to work, it, it has to be free of conflict and free of vested interest. So this is why we, we chose to, to work with DNB Healthcare because they are a separate company with no financial ties to us. And they come in and independently audit uh, to our, uh, our model to their standards that we have worked with them on setting. So they come in independently and review that. And so as we look at how they would evaluate a, a, a reliability management team, which is what our terminology for, for it, they're going to be looking at how, who's, what's the purpose of the team, uh, who comprises the team, how we train the team, and how that team is measured for proficiency. And that implies time-based measurement. You can't just be good today. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't fly with me, by the way, since I haven't flown big jets since 2010. You wouldn't get on a 767 with me today. And you shouldn't because uh, I wouldn't be proficient. Now, if I had participated in, in a proficiency-based program where I go back and get additional training and reviews and check, then, then I can restore that qualification. So we went with the term qualification uh, related to teams. We said, we're gonna go in and work with them as consultants, train them up to a level of proficiency where they're ready to be evaluated independently by DNB, 
and that and that qualification for the team carries a time limit. So it's going. So can to we talk about that for just a minute, Scott? Because I think that's an important concept that you just brought up. The, the, the concept of like when we go through human performance factors and we start talking about somebody's knowledge, skill and ability, that's different than proficiency. So right. we think about it. I, you know, I think you and I had this conversation a while ago as I think about it in the terms of like when you got your driver's license, what that means was is that day you had the ability to drive a car right. based on what the standards were, but that doesn't mean, but if you sat and didn't drive your car again for two years, then gotten a different car, you certainly probably wouldn't be proficient in driving the car or on ice or snow or any of these other conditions, right? So I think there's a distinct difference and people don't always understand that difference between, you know, qualified and proficient or, you know, those sorts of things. So, and that's, again, I think goes back to that taxonomy process, which is really identifying what, what does that term mean to you is an important part of the process. Yeah. And that's a great example, Paul, that in our society, we, we don't make uh, driving vehicles on the road proficiency based. We get a, a really a, a lifetime license. Uh, as long as we go back and pay the fee, we don't get tested. Uh, we don't get reviewed for proficiency. In contrast, that with certain high uh, consequence yeah. activities like I, pilots have to be skill based, proficiency based. I have and, a I have a friend Scott who um, you know as you know as Scott knows my my parents are both in their nineties. My dad's ninety seven and. Neither, neither of my parents drive anymore, but I was over the other, this is like a month or two ago, and there was some people there and another elderly couple. And I know that the gentleman can't see anymore, particularly at night, but, but I also know that the wife doesn't have a driver's license. So I was unsure how they got over there. Their car was there. And, and, and my mom says, well, she tells him when to stop and when to turn. So he... <laughs> He's driving the car and she's like, okay, you need to start slowing down. We're coming up to a stop sign. And, and, and he, he, he can see well enough to stay in the lanes, but not do anything else. And I was thinking, oh my God, you know, and I think that's a great example, right? I mean, he, on paper, he's qualified to drive a vehicle, but he's certainly no longer hey, proficient, right? You, you so, may have just hit on a new model. Instead of having an individual zero license, you, you, you license them in teams. In, in, in that's pairs, right. right? <laughs> that's, it's a good idea. Not. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, um, with that little humorous anecdote, uh, the, the, the concept here for, for both of us was, and by the way, we haven't even gotten to how organizations become certified that that comes later. The starting point for us is getting a team that, that, that has the right purpose in place. That's documented measurements, because anything that you do in high reliability work, if it's worth doing, it should be worth doing reliably. And that often means having an independent assessment of it within you know, some kind of measurement that we're doing the right thing and, and, and that will produce the, the, the correct results. This is very different than just measuring outcomes. We're saying evidence shows an organization won't become sustainably reliable without a consulting company, unless they have a, an embedded team. Right. That's the starting point. Then the second step, which really gets us both excited, I know, because we spent about over a decade working in the space of just culture, where when we'd ask an organization that, that says they're just cultural organizations, well, what does it mean? They couldn't give us a definition of it. And, and even if they were to give us a definition of it, 
we would say, well, how do you know it's working? What measures do you use to, to, to Yeah, assess? and I think that's a fundamental piece here that is they always pivoted back to, and nothing, I mean, against HR, but they always pivoted back to, it was a strategy for them to determine what to do with someone. It wasn't a strategy to manage risk. It, it, it became a process of, I have a card that tells me as a supervisor what I'm supposed to do. And, and it's good because it, we just we just cultured them. So somehow it got this like, this is the right way to do it. And, and, and the problem was, is they were just using it to determine whether or not am I, am I supposed to coach them? Am I supposed to punish them? Am I supposed to let them go? I mean, what am I supposed to do? And, and this was to, what to tell them what to do, but there was zero follow up. And, and there was really no consistency. You have people who are like, I haven't taken that card out of the drawer in a year because I haven't had anybody break a rule. Yeah, yeah. Paul, that brings <laughs> to mind a story that, that I've shared with you many times, but I was in a hospital and I uh, talked to a CEO and outside of the CEO's door was a plaque that said, we are a just cultural organization. And I, and I said, well, that's, that's, that's great. T tell me about it. And, and he said, well, I can't really describe it, but let me go find Sandy. And so I asked around the hospital and I finally found Sandy. She was a director in HR and she was in this portable building across the street from the hospital. And I walked in and I told her I was here to ask her about Just Culture. And she said, yeah, come on in and I'll tell you about it. And I said, well, what is it? And she said, well, hold on a minute. And she looked around her office it took about five minutes and she finally, in one of the bottom drawers, she pulled out an old algorithm, dusted it, out, literally blew dust off of it and said, here, this is what we use. And I said, well, how, how did you learn to use it? Were, were you trained? And, and she said, well, no, someone gave it to me at a conference. And so I said, well, so do you use it? She said, well, no, I haven't ever used it. And, but, but they had the plaque on the wall. And, and not to disparage this hospital because they were doing some great things other than just culture, but they couldn't define it. Uh, it wasn't being measured, uh, but, but it had, they had checked the box. Yeah, what's really missing on the whole piece, and I think this pivots us back to the concept of um, qualification, is what's your sustainment strategy? What, what does this look like? two or three years down the road, are you better at it? Are, are, are you continually learning during the process? Or was it a, we checked that box, it was the shiny thing for this month. And, and next month it's some other, ne next month it's magnet or it's something else, right? I mean, we're gonna do some other shiny thing that we get a plaque for. And, and I think the hard part is trying to convince people that you know, actually integrating this in is is tough. I, I've walked into places and said, you need to be prepared for this organization your size for this to take five to seven years. And they're like, well, we can have so-and-so come in and teach us a class in two weeks and we're done. I'm like, okay, well, we'll just see where you're at in five to seven years with both models. And it's because you don't just walk in and go, hey, new culture on Monday. I mean, it doesn't work like that. So I, instituting these things means taking what's already in place, not criticizing it, but making these small refinements and adjustments and alignments to make sure it's like, don't stop doing huddles, but let's make sure that it's aligned with the, with the, with the program and make sure that program is aligned with a way to capture data. And you know, these are the things that we like to do that we think are so effective, but that's part of that qualification process. We have to get the team qualified first so that they really see this internally and they can be doing this when we're not there. Yeah. And that's a good uh, sort of a, a segue to an endpoint that'll lead us into our next uh, podcast on 
the collaborative just culture qualification model, which is the second step after team qualification. And uh, what we'll be doing then is we'll be defining what just culture is. And one of my, um, one, one word that always sort of struck me as odd was when organizations said, how do I implement a just culture? And, and you're just going back to first principles with my OCD, uh, I think, well, can you implement a culture? Um, yeah. At best, you might be able to, it's, it's really hard to even identify all the elements that, that comprise a culture, but how do you, how do you influence it? How, how do you guide it or nudge it or tip it? All of those are fair questions, but it's not something you can just implement. Uh, that, that sort of conveys a training mindset that if you train someone, you've implemented it. Well, that's not the way humans react. Uh, necessarily to, to change. Well, and they forget that how hard it is culturally in an organization. People think when they're tipping a culture or changing a culture that, you know, this is something we can just do institutionally and they forget all the myriad of subcultures. And, you know, I, I came from an extremely large fire department. We had dozens of fire stations and you set a organ, we set our organizational culture set by our executive team was pretty healthy in the executive building. Right. And then you had to get out to the fire stations and every single one based even on the demographics of where the station was and the type of calls they ran had different cultures and the type of people that they drew the really busy stations, you know, gung ho, and then you go to the stations that were kind of out in the country and they had the retired, almost retired people there. And, and while they had the same feelings and wanting to do the same work that culturally they had a different approach sometimes to things and, and so going in and doing this is a process that we have found we have to build these teams and the team has to have a really solid understanding of, the, uh, of our methods and what we see. And then they can start seeing at all different levels of the organization and start making those adjustments themselves instead of us coming in as a consultant from a hundred miles away and doing it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the advantage of having a fully trained and proficient team that gets measured uh, periodically, because without that component of it driving the organization, you you won't implement a culture. Uh, it's just it's just impossible to 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 do. And Scott, uh, you and I have traded team off teams before, just to make sure that like we're yeah. because we even have a different style and methodology of training up our teams that were assigned. So we found it valuable to have you get on with my team sometime, and me get on with the teams that you're focused on. And they, I think they learn from the from the stylistic differences and things too, don't you? Yeah. Well, well again, this goes back to the aviation model where we have uh, individuals come in and and uh, in flight standards would check the work of the trainers, and then that third level of redundancy is typically the FAA comes in and does the final uh, uh, evaluation. Uh, so with our clients, yeah, we have at times switched out, and and I'll look at your clients and by you'll look at mine. But, but what's really exciting to us is now we have that uh, independent accreditation body known as yeah. DMD. Okay, they can come in without the vested interest uh, and free of conflict and, and to a well-defined uh, model with a set of standards. Uh, and that's what it's taken us, gosh, Paul, since we started the company in 2013, it's taken us up till now. Here we are the summer of 2021. Uh, we're just now getting those standards uh, ready to be published. 
So well, I'm pretty excited about it because you look in other industries and there really isn't a set of standard. High reliability is all over the map, just like reliable means yeah. different things to different people. And, and so when you look at it and you go all the way back to Wick and Sutcliffe and some of the earlier uh, people who, who started talking about high reliability and you, and you advance the science to where you know, we think it is today, there's a whole ton of people that are still out there on the initial framework of it and, and using those terms without really understanding how to operationalize them. I think this criteria, Scott, is the first time we've seen anything that's been operationalized to use a term that you can actually take this and, and make your organization, whether it be a Walmart or a hospital, highly reliable. It doesn't have to be a clinical environment. Well, that, that's certainly our goal. And we'll, we'll, we'll explore this further. Uh... Uh, as we go forward. Uh, you just mentioned something I think is going to be really exciting for us, Paul, when we start, you mentioned why consecutive. We'll, we'll do it. one of our podcasts, let's do a comparison of what they consider attributes of highly reliable organizations and how we see those. So uh, we'll have fun with that one. Um, yeah, yeah, that'll be a good one. Okay. okay. Well, well, we both said okay at the same time. Uh, this ends uh, this podcast. I hope uh, it inspires you to come back and, and listen to the next one where we talk about collaborative just culture program uh, qualification. And then we'll, that will lead us into the, the three tiers of the DNB healthcare collaborative high reliability certification program, which is where every organization is headed uh, that works with us. So uh, thanks again, Paul. We'll look forward right. to our next one and we'll keep this series going. Sounds good. Take care.